presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, this is Pastor Adam again, and uh, we're here. We're going to go uh, over the next iteration of this last journey of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. This is the fourth uh, message uh, on this, fourth uh, in this series. So let's let's pray to the Lord, and then we'll get into this. So, Father, we are grateful for this day, and we are grateful for your word, and we are once again, coming forth and asking for your assistance, Father, to give us understanding of what your word says, uh, understand uh, the actual meaning behind all of these parables and this journey that you you took uh, to Jerusalem and, and f- what it means for us today, uh, you know, as it meant 2,000 years ago and, and what it means for us today. So, Father, we come to you Uh, humbly asking for your help to understand. We thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I think what we're going to look at today is kind of, I'm starting this with, it's it's almost in a way unbelievable. And and what I'm referring to is that Jesus's condemnation of the Jews, of, of Herod, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, gets him, get this, this is what happens. He gets an invitation to dinner at a chief of the Pharisees' home. Jesus is invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And that the fact that this occurred pretty much shows that the Pharisees were scheming to trap Jesus any way they could. It's like they're getting really desperate. And they're you know, I guess they're hoping Jesus would say the wrong thing and that they'd be able to have witnesses to this. And I think this tactic that the Pharisees use here is something I think, frankly, that we can relate to in our culture, uh, in the Western world, in America here. And, and, and what I mean is, you know, how many times have we watched uh, as a journalist, a reporter, uses provocative questions to elicit a response, you know, and then they cleverly edit the recording so they can get a good soundbite and they don't care about accuracy. So let's set the stage on how Jesus is get, Jesus gets, to this in, gets this invitation to dinner with the Pharisees. And so just prior to this invitation to a Pharisee's house, we had some of the Pharisees telling Jesus that he should leave. Because Herod is looking for Jesus. So, you know, Herod wants to eliminate Jesus because he doesn't want to have any kind of, uh, you know, disruption going on. And, you know, they did the very same thing to John the Baptist a couple, you know, a year, a couple of years prior. Now, okay, the bottom line is this is not of concern to Jesus at all. And, you know, let's just, let's just, Make sure we, we understand from Jesus's, from God's perspective here. This is a huge lesson for all of us here. And the lesson is don't allow all the talk, all the chatter that goes on around you to impact your emotional condition, condition just because it sounds negative. You got to, 
you know, I talk about this so often. We've got to remember who we are. Who are you and whose are you? In each and every situation. Because the enemy, (laughs) he will lie, cheat, steal, spread mistruths to get you off your purpose and destiny. To get you off your assignment. Okay, so Jesus, he's well aware that the Jews had planned to kill him for some time now. And this latest threat to kill Jesus, you know, it'd been going on for months. It started back in the fall time frame. I mean, we're in the spring time frame as he's going, heading to Jerusalem this last journey. It's going to be the festival of Passover, the spring feasts of the Lord. And and we're, he's within a, you know, a week, maybe 10 days, a uh, couple weeks, you know, before this time. And so this had been going on now for about six months. It, ha- it actually started in the fall festivals at the Feast of Tabernacles. So this, it's been going on for six months. And it's been out in the open that the Jews are wanting to kill Jesus. And Herod had been looking for Jesus as he was confused. Herod was confused and thought that Jesus might be, it's, you know, John the Baptist coming back to life after Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. So again, there's, this is no surprise to Jesus as synagogue leaders had been threatening to kill him, even in his own hometown. That's recorded in Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 30. I mean, if you want to you know, check that out again and we get refreshed on that. So this, this is nothing new to Jesus. So, and, and something that, you know, doesn't make sense with all of this is why in the world are the Pharisees warning Jesus about Herod when, when they themselves had been wanting to kill Jesus? Now, I'm speculating here, my, my brain takes me to this. It's probably because Herod sent them Because Herod, right, he did not want Jesus hanging around stirring up the crowds at the next Jewish festival like he did at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Okay? And and it's leading up, right, again, Jesus is getting near for Passover, and Passover is not that far away. It's a week, a few days, you know, at this point. You know, so I think it makes perfect sense that Herod, you know, he would— ask, pressure, I guess, a group of Pharisees to, you know, carry a death threat in order to, you know, get Jesus off his game, right? Um, And because Herod's thinking, man, these are such socially and politically unstable times. I don't want anything to, you know, make things unstable so that the Romans want to get rid of Herod as the king. So, and it, It was, after all, very likely that it was during a Passover celebration that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had killed the Galileans that were referred to in Luke chapter 13. That Remember we were reading this the last few times in Luke chapter 13? Because Passover was the only feast where the people offered up their own sacrifices. And that's where we had that phrase in Luke 13 there, Luke 13, 1, where it says, and their sacrifices. So, Herod, right, is a cow. King Herod is a coward. Uh, He didn't want to be in position of being looked at as a defender of the Jewish people against the Roman aggression. So, okay, so in the midst of this like political turmoil, 
Jesus did not take a politically correct route or a tomb very popular over the last few years here in America, in the Western world, is woke. I just want everyone to understand, Jesus would not be woke. He wouldn't be concerned about being woke or politically correct. In fact, Jesus stirs the pot by referring openly to Herod as that fox. That's that's really interesting verbiage Jesus used here. See, fox means uh, cowardly, conniving scavenger, which is a perfect description of Herod. So that was kind of like a quick background into what we are going to read now in Scripture. Okay, so here we go. We're going to we're continuing on at, in Luke chapter thirteen, starting with verse thirty-one, and I'm going to read Luke thirteen verses thirty-one to thirty-five. If if you want to follow along. You know, pause it here, go get your Bible if you don't have it, or get your Bible app out. We're going to read Luke 13, starting with verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to uh, Jesus, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus says to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so, all right. First off, Jesus makes it crystal clear. He has a purpose and a destiny. His goal is to reach Jerusalem, and he's not going to stop giving divine witness of this mess, his message until he reaches that goal, regardless of whatever threats are made against him. Jesus is going to continue healing the sick, casting out demons, which is proof that the kingdom of God is here, has come, in other words. And Jesus will not stop doing that until he is physically dead. In other words, Jesus' assignment is not finished until he has no breath. And And I don't know if we realize this, but that is the same thing that applies to you and I. And furthermore, Jesus will remain undaunted by threats from either the Pharisees or Herod. Okay, then uh, the second point here is Jesus repeats several themes in that little discourse we just read. One is that Jerusalem is the killer of the prophets. Another thing he points out is Jerusalem is rejecting her Messiah. And the third thing he's saying is the house left will be left empty or desolate. So, okay, what we have here is Jesus once again repeating these prophecies for these Pharisees and hoping that they're going to take this message back to that fox, Herod. Now, this whole section of Luke 13 is really summarized by the statement that there will only be a remnant left or a few of Israel, 
saved after the judgment comes from God. Now, remember that the last message, uh, we, we discussed how Jesus was sharing that only a few would get through the narrow gate in time or, or worse, uh, that the Pharisees and the lawyers and the Sadducees and the scribes were blocking the door for people to get through to the Lord. Nevertheless, the question is always answered as to what will replace this fruitless tree. And the answer is that God will raise up children of Abraham from all over the world, from the north, south, east, and west. And these these kids, these kids of Abraham are gonna sit down with the patriarch at Christ's table in the kingdom. And so Jesus, you know, he's undaunted by the threat from Herod. He continues on this journey to Jerusalem as we end chapter 13. And now we're beginning Luke chapter 14. And we're gonna read now that this obsession the Pharisees had with eliminating Jesus and appeasing Herod appears once again in the very next passage at the beginning of Luke 14. Let's read the beginning of Luke chapter 14, verses one and two. Here it is. Now it happened as he, Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched Jesus closely. And behold, there was a certain man before Jesus who had dropsy. All right, well, okay, so we've seen this scenario before, folks. Okay, here, it's like, here we go again, right? It was just last chapter in Luke 13 that Jesus loosed the woman from 18 years of infirmity in the synagogue on the Sabbath and was confronted publicly by the ruler of that synagogue, right? So now here we have Jesus invited to dinner in a house of one of the ruler's of the Pharisees, right? And it just happened to be on the Sabbath and there just happened to be another diseased person in their midst. This time it's a diseased man. Now, nothing is really told to us about how this was all prepared. Like how did this scenario get set up? I think, I think the likely scenario here is that Jesus was invited by the Pharisees specifically on the Sabbath day and the diseased man was placed in the home by the Pharisees. And just so we understand the Pharisees and the Jewish traditions that they followed, folks, here's, here's what we gotta grasp. As a rabbi, they believed, Pharisees believed, you could not be in the presence with someone who's diseased or crippled or dead or bleeding. In other words, you would never, ever find a crippled or diseased person hanging out where the Pharisees were hanging out. So that's why I don't think it's a far stretch. I'm not really brilliant here. I'm just using common sense knowledge of understanding who we're dealing with here. This scenario is a setup to trap Jesus. And Jesus, he's not slow to catch on, right? He's, he's, he identifies their pitiful scheme immediately. So instead of uh, letting the Pharisees spring the trap, Jesus preempts, the, preempts them with his own question. Let's read on the next two verses, Luke 14, verses three and four now. So it, the scripture says, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. 
and he took him and healed him and let him go. So some, uh, some things here we don't want to miss. I think it's very interesting that Jesus is the first to speak. Because in many Bibles, it'll say like, uh, they'll, you'll see the word responded or answered. So Jesus speaks, even though the Pharisees and lawyers had not said anything yet. They just, you know, we get introduced there in chapter 14. He's, he's going into that. Jesus is in, going into the house. No, nothing's recorded of anybody saying anything until Jesus says, is it legal? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Right? I believe this implies that Jesus knew they planted this man in the house and that the mere presence of this, you know, diseased man was a statement. It's like an opening challenge, if you will, that the Pharisees were putting on Jesus. But I think the Pharisees were unprepared when Jesus took the initiative. I mean, really, being schemers, they were naturally cowards, and they remained silent. And Jesus took him and healed him and sent him on his way. And by Jesus taking the initiative, it was Jesus who is now running the show. Then Jesus continues, right? He hits them with the law that they all knew so well. Let's continue on Luke chapter 14, verses 5 and 6 now. Then Jesus answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer Jesus regarding these things. Because remember, Jesus asked the question in verse three, I think it is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They don't say anything. So then he answers, right? They had no answer to this legal question. Meaning they, they had no answer to his demonstration of messianic power either. For these two go hand in hand. The Pharisees are sitting there judged. They're speechless. Remember that this entire journey, now this last journey Jesus has taken from Galilee to Jerusalem, it, we're reading, we're seeing story after story, parable after parable, showing how Jesus is setting his face against Jerusalem. Jesus is bringing his covenant lawsuit upon the unbelieving Jewish community, the leaders. Jesus would not be the one judged by God. Jesus was the judge. And this healing that Jesus conducts of this man and Jesus' sharing of the Torah reveals that the law did command healing to be done on the Sabbath. And then the judgment that Jesus is the righteous one according to both fact and law. So the joke was ultimately on the Pharisees. Not only had they been shown up with their own scheme, but the very man they used as bait turned out to receive the blessing of healing. All the while, they themselves are sitting there stunned, unusually silent, and with nothing but desolation in their future. The man with dropsy, right? He receives the kingdom while the Pharisees were locked outside. So within about a week, because we have, we have these two real examples, right? One being the woman healed after 18 years, right, on a Sabbath. And now this man healed from dropsy in both cases, and it's the next Sabbath. So Jesus is doing these on Sabbaths, <laughs> a Sabbath after Sabbath. So it's around an eight-day period, right? And in both cases, Jesus is reminding the religious leaders that the law allows this or basically commands healing on the Sabbath. And, and if that wasn't enough, 
Jesus was not yet ready to let his own uncomfortable dinner hosts off the hook. Because it's like Jesus immediately pivots, if you will, from priestly work, which is the healing, right, to prophetic work, which is proclaiming. Jesus uses this very scenario that the Pharisees had created in order to condemn them. Let's, let's read on. This is what I'm talking about. Let's continue now in Luke 14, starting with verse 7, and we'll read through verse 15. So Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brother, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. All right, so Jesus tells them that they chose seats of honor for themselves or for others and that they invited only wealthy friends and families to their feasts. Then one of these guys tries to get clever with Jesus when he says in verse 15, blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay, now, now this statement exhibits two things. Now, this is something we need to, pay attention to, I mean, not any different than anything else to pay attention to, but I think this is something that a lot of us miss, okay? So what, one thing this exhibits is a pretense of spiritual rather than earthly focus, which Jesus had just apparently condemned, and the second thing is a pretense of ignoring class distinctions. Now, the first is less important than the second, for we already know that the Pharisees dress everything they do with appeals to the law and prophecy. But here, here, this man's statement is an implicit argument against what Jesus just taught. Jesus had just said to prefer the poor and crippled and to refuse seats of honor. That's what he just said in that parable. It's like Jesus, it seems to be an attack on wealth and status in general. And the man, I think, took it that way because then he says, blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom. So I think this guy is implying, hey, Jesus, not just the poor will be blessed, but us wealthy leaders also will be blessed. But, but Jesus's emphasis was not on the wealth itself, but on the Pharisees' selfish, selfishness, their, their pride, their love of honor. Their, uh, and most importantly, I, th- I think the thing that all these vices kind of revealed about these Pharisees, right? Is their self-assured presumption that they even had a place in the kingdom of God. Let that that sink in for us. 
They had not let realize that their assumption that they possessed the kingdom would be taken away. So in typical Jesus fashion, he restates his position with another parable. Let's, let's continue on now. Luke 14, starting with verse 16. It goes from 16 to 24. Then Jesus said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Hmm, wow. Now, no doubt this parable relates to the immediate setting, but it is really a direct reference to Israel's position with God. I mean, this is said to this immediate group of Pharisees and their guests, right? The book of Luke here, Luke clearly records that Jesus gave the previous parable to those who were invited and to the man who had invited him. And now in this parable, Jesus is speaking speaking directly to the clever individual at the table that made that comment in verse 16. But, but don't miss that this content is clearly a larger allegory for the nation as a whole. Let's break down this interpretation of this parable. The man who gives the great banquet is God. The great banquet itself is the kingdom of God. And remember, we just had a dinner guest make that comment about eating bread in the kingdom of God. So it's like Jesus is, in a sense, answering, saying to this guy, you want to talk about eating bread in the kingdom of God? Well, pal, I'll tell you who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The original invited guests were a mirror of Jesus' immediate audience, the the Jews. These were the original invitees to God's kingdom, as Romans chapter 3, verse 2 says. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Israelites were, right, that Romans not, chapter 9 says, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. In other words, The Jews had it all. They had the first dibs on the seats in the great banquet, but they let their personal ambitions and desires distract them from this God view assignment. They were distracted. They were self-absorbed, self-assured, and they openly refused the invitation. Now, of course, these ungracious guests offer many excuses just like the people that were shut out of the narrow gate example. But the results, folks, are the same. They will be left out due to their own choice. 
They had failed to embrace, embrace the invitation early. And as a result, what they originally had was taken and given to somebody else. Their initial ref the refusal of the, the initial people here made the master of the house angry. Remember, like reading about Moses, he got angry over the idolatrous distraction of the golden calf. Remember that God promised to get angry when Israel broke the covenant to follow other idols into the future. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, the other people that will be offered this invitation come in two stages. The first stage is referred to as the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And they were from the streets and the lanes. But there was not enough of them to fill the kingdom as there's still room for more. So the master sent his disciples out even further. He says, go to the highways and the hedges to bring in whomsoever could be compelled. I think it's obvious that this first group represents the remnants of the Jews who would make the narrow gate. These are the Jews who we're talking about and reading about from Acts chapter 2, who would continue on, right, that we're calling the, the church, the ecclesia, but it's really a continuation from the Old Testament remnant to this new group or congregation or assembly of the New Testament people. The second group represents the extension of the gospel of the kingdom to the Gentiles. I think this parable that we just read teaches a powerful overarching lesson. And the lesson is that the self-assured Jews had ignored the time of their invitation and that they would soon lose their place in the kingdom. Let's, let's take a moment here and just review what's gone on so far here that we've been reading in Luke chapter 14. Jesus had conferred the blessings of God's kingdom upon the diseased man in their midst and had then criticized the manners and assumptions of the Pharisees. These leaders of the Jews were the ungracious, distracted idolaters who would lose their seats at the table. And the crippled, the diseased, the blind were the true invitees to the kingdom. And there would yet be more invitees to replace the rebellious, unbelieving Jews. And they're going to come from the farthest reaches and fringes of the world. That refers to the pagan nation, the Gentiles. That's how the Jews would look at him, the pagan nation. The, the clever guy who assumed he would eat bread in God's kingdom was certainly given a rude shock when Jesus said, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Only the chosen remnant of grace symbolized in both person and the parable of the cripple. This parable teaches a lesson taught in other parables, for instance, that are recorded in Matthew, where Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. That's in Matthew chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 22. This is, I think, the same lesson what Jesus is sharing here recorded in the book of Luke. The same theme permeates across Jesus's teachings. Israel was the many who had been called, but they had refused to enter the kingdom banquet. Now, judgment was coming for their dereliction and only a few would be chosen. It's a remnant of the elect, of the elect true Israel. And the majority of the Jews would live out days in rebellion. You know, I found this. It's very interesting. A, a rabbi in Poland, he lived in the late 1700s. His name was Simka Bunim. Here's something he taught. He said, everyone must have two pockets with a note in each pocket. 
so that they can reach into one or the other depending on what's going on. If you're feeling lowly, depressed, and discouraged, you should reach into the right pocket and there you're going to find the words, the world was created for me. But if you're feeling high and mighty and proud, you should reach into the left pocket and find the words written, I am but dust and ashes. I think this is a valuable lesson and it simplifies it, right? When we humble ourselves, we are exalted. In other words, if you dip your hand into the left pocket first and remind yourself that you're but dust and ashes, you will always end up in your right pocket and be reminded that the world was created for you. Never lose sight of the end result, folks. God never asks us to suffer for the mere sake of suffering. Many times people have turned down the invitation because the timing was inconvenient and our excuses sounded reasonable. Right? These things like will just, uh, work duties, family responsibilities, financial needs, just fill in the blank. Nevertheless, God's invitation is the most important event in our lives, no matter how inconveniently it may be timed. So I'm going to end this for now, and we're going to, we'll be picking up here, and, and uh, the next lesson will be the fifth one. But I hope this inspires you and uh, challenges us, encourages us and humbles us. God bless you. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.